Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of That One Show with Brian Cones. And for the first time ever, we are doing a non-music-centric episode. And I couldn't think of a better way to do our first non-music episode than Kentucky author Bobby Kahn. Join us today primarily to talk about her new book coming out on August 30th, A Woman in Time. But we'll also discuss her previous book. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Bobby, for joining us today. How are you? Great, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So if our listeners are not familiar with you at all, let's just talk a little bit about uh, just uh, maybe your very short uh, Cliff Notes version of your bio. Yeah, um, I grew up in uh, outside of Moorhead in eastern Kentucky. Um, I went to Berea College in Madison County and got my master's degree in creative writing in uh, or at Eastern Kentucky University. So, you know, I've been in Appalachia from Eastern Kentucky to Central Kentucky pretty much all my life. And I just love the region and, of course, love the place that I came from. So um, one of the one of the things that I've enjoyed writing about the most is the complexity and the deep love that we have, you know, all us people from the area that we have for the region and the people while also trying to honestly grapple with um, some of the, the complications and difficulties that we face sometimes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, the unique thing about us folks uh, in Appalachian specifically that grew up in the eastern part of Kentucky if we move even if we move you know at a young age and and, and never come back to live that's we always consider that our home oh yeah <laughs> uh I after college I did move for a few years but and you know as the old saying goes the mountains kept calling so mm -hmm. I eventually did move back uh to my hometown and um you got you were first on my radar a couple of years ago with a memoir that you wrote, and I'm I think it was your first actual published uh, full length book in the shadow of the valley. And before we get into the new book, let's talk about that one because I, as I was telling you earlier before we began recording, it was one of my favorite books the year it came out. Uh, so let's talk briefly about that. What first of all, you you know you obviously got your degree in creative writing. What made you choose for your first book a memoir and not a work of fiction? So this, uh, the memoir came out of a story that I just wanted to tell as I was working on my creative writing thesis for my master's. I wanted to tell the story um, about something that my dad made me do when I was little. Because at the time, there was like... I, I was starting to realize just how dysfunctional my life had been. Um, but I also think that storytelling really can elevate our painful experiences and, you know, some of the more dark aspects of life into art. And I decided, well, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Like I want to turn all of the, the rough things, the unpleasant things into art. And, um, I also realized at the time that I could um, help other people if I was willing to be honest. And uh, it took a, a great deal of courage for me to be as honest as I was in the memoir. So um, 
you know, at the time I actually was studying poetry and I had fallen in love with short stories. So when I did my creative writing thesis, I had those elements woven into the narrative as well. But to get it traditionally published, you know, my agent informed me that those things had to go. So it was a more um, like inventive form in, in its initial like uh, concept. But then, you know, I just created a more like traditional memoir to make it, you know, more palatable for the general public. Yeah, and, and you know, you briefly mentioned in your introduction about some of the challenges people face in our area. And, and, and you did mention then that you were sometimes brutally honest in your memoir yeah. uh, about some of the challenges you've had, you know, growing up and becoming an adult in, in Eastern Kentucky. And that was probably one of my, you know, favorite parts was that I knew that you were being, you know, so open and honest in this memoir. And I knew personally some people that experienced very similar situations that you did. And obviously, you know, that writing about that helps, but also if someone's going through something that's very similar, reading about it can help to let them know, hey, there's other people out there that have, have went through this and they've came out on the other end and I can too. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, when I sat and was really going through the editing stages where I had to make those final decisions about what's, what's actually going out there for the whole world to see, you know, I was really tempted to cut out some of the, the parts that, I'm less proud of, you know, things that I did or choices I made that don't, didn't reflect well on me. But I realized, you know, if I, if I turned it into a story where I had this awful childhood or, you know, all awful things happened to me that I was just basically a victim of. And then I turned into this, you know, person who is able to articulate my story and claim like agency over it and those sorts of things, but didn't show that in-between part where I was really struggling because I, I had a lot of hope, but I also was, I had a lot of despair at the same time, you know, and it felt like there was a, a serious battle between light and dark within me for a while. <laughs> and I thought if I leave that part out, you know, then other people who have, dealt with real darkness or real, you know, feel like they've made real mistakes in life, they're not going to see themselves in my story. And they're going to see themselves as somehow being maybe, um, you know, less redeemable than, than other people who, who seem to get to the good stuff in life a little more quicker. Yeah. So, yeah. I appreciate yes. that. Yeah. And, and before we do move on to the new book, once again, already out and has been on shelves or on ebook for a couple of years now is your memoir in the shadow of the valley i recommend that to anyone who hasn't read it uh, go go ahead and pick that up especially if you love reading about uh people who are from and live in eastern kentucky and uh, let's now move on to your debut novel a woman in time a work of fiction but as we'll get into, I think that it's probably, you know, my creative writing teacher in college many years ago 
started the first class with write what you know. Mm-hmm. So you've had to have known people like the characters in this book, and we'll get into that. But let's talk about it is coming out August 30th, correct? Uh, yes. In, in hardback, paperback, and on Kindle or any other e-readers, correct? Yep, that's yes. right. So I would recommend people just go ahead and pre-order that now. Uh, I was fortunate enough you sent me a uh, ARC copy so I could read it. So I don't know a little bit about what I was talking about with you today. <laughs> and uh, I've had people begging me uh, to read that. So some co-workers are in the process of reading that now and really enjoying it. And uh, and I really, really loved it. And let's go ahead and begin. Uh, w- was the process different this time than it was writing your memoir as far as the creative process and then, and, you know, actually writing, sending off to edit, uh, rewriting, things of that nature? So for me, um, the, the physical process of like sitting down, mapping out the story was a little easier with the novels. With the memoir, it it took me a lot longer to write it, and it went through some serious like overhauls a couple of different times. Um, with the novel, I started out with a couple of stories from my childhood, you know, that I'd heard about my great grandparent, and basically I knew that those were like my my goalposts. I wanted to make sure to include them in the story, so it was just a matter of finding ways to incorporate them in at the right time so that the story was flowing and I I kept an eye out for where these true stories could be inserted into the narrative Um, and and that all you know went pretty smoothly Um, the big difference was like this book has an emotional impact on me still even though it's you know mostly fiction um but, you know, I, I didn't have to go back and, like, <laughs> do edits and proofreading for, uh, like, traumatic events that happened to me. And that was a really just interesting challenge with the memoir is that, you know, um, I'm working through all of these uh, experiences. You know, people people think, yeah, that's, and it is, it's cathartic, you know, it's, it's therapeutic to do that. But at the same time, like you're, you're having to look at it from questions of, you know, how are my, how's my sentence structure? Is this going to be interesting to the reader? You know, is it accessible to the reader? Am I wallowing in self-pity? Can't be doing that. (laughs) Not interesting. Uh, Um, Yeah. First of all, uh, I love the title, A Woman in Time, uh, and we will go ahead and start talking about it, and we will try our best not to spoil anything for those that are going to read it when it comes out here in a couple weeks, but, you know, the setting is early 1900s Appalachia, and it does follow uh, a, a few generations of the McKenzie women, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and the thing that immediately jumped out at me was some of the stuff that went on in this book i've ho- i've heard almost verbatim from my grandparents about them as well as their their parents which would be my great grandparents who are were from uh Breathitt county kentucky and laurel county kentucky on on both sides my, my mother and father and let's talk a little bit about you know what made you 
want to write uh, your debut novel, not set in present day, but basically, you know, 100 years ago? Well, and thank you for sharing that, you know, that this is uh, true to to the lives of people, you know, because I've, I've heard that from some other people and that's just a thrill. Um, when I when I wrote my memoir, I mentioned my great grandpa. He was a moonshiner and I grew up on stories about him. You know, he he worked with Al Capone. I've got the railroad lantern he brought back from Chicago. Um, there was a newspaper clipping of him in prison. I'm pretty sure he was with Al Capone. And then staying them in the boxer shorts with their arms around each other. You know, and he you know, my dad would tell me all these stories about him and he was he was an outlaw, you know, he was he also murdered people and uh, I found a bottle of his moonshine long after he died. And, um, you know, so he loomed large as this character and he was a hero in my mind growing up. But after I wrote about him in my memoir and then I was thinking, well, I should really dive into that history. I really want to find all the facts, you know, when was he in prison and where? Get that picture of him and Al Capone again. You know, all these factual details and it hit me the person whose story is never told in these kinds of uh, real life occurrences would be my great grandmother's side of things. And, and it just hit me one day, like, you know, she's the one who was trying to raise those kids while her husband was in prison. You know, she's the one who um, her husband killed her father-in-law, you know, or I'm sorry, killed her dad. So, my great-grandpa killed his father-in-law, supposedly at the dinner table, arguing over who made better whiskey. <laughs> and um, and my great-grandma also, it was rumored, had uh, had an affair. And my great-grandpa got out of prison one time and came home to find a kid there that certainly wasn't his. And that he helped raise that kid, though, for the rest of his life. So, you know, I just... I, I just wanted to dive into what it would be like to be my great grandma because I realized, you know, she wouldn't have told her stories to my dad. You know, my dad couldn't tell them to me, but she had her own rich history. And that is something that is, you know, we've just historically not paid a lot of attention to is what are the women who are holding families together? What are they suffering through internally and externally? And where, where is their power coming from? Because growing up in Eastern Kentucky, I'm sure you've got a matriarch in your family. Like almost all of us have a granny or a mamma who was the glue of our families, you know, and their lives weren't easy. And most of the time, looking back, it doesn't seem like they were very pleasant. So yes. I really wanted to explore, like, where, where did these women get their strength? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was common uh, for women to be married very early age. Uh, you know, one yeah. of the main characters in this book is married as a teenager. Both of my grandparents, my grandmothers were. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and this really didn't spoil a whole lot because it's kind of on the back cover of the synopsis. It, uh, it was sometimes for females growing up in that area and in that time frame of the early 1900s, they didn't have a lot of choice of who they married. It was almost an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, 
thinking about that, that was just a hundred years ago. So it's not like it's, it's ancient history. So, right. you know, still today, obviously, you know, females, uh, not just in Eastern Kentucky, but, you know, in the country and the world have a lot of challenges that males don't have. I mean, that's obvious, but the fact that, you know, you were basically being, being married off at, you know, 15, 16, uh, to someone you really didn't know that you were just vaguely acquainted with that. Uh, I don't know that I really made that connection that that was uh, a common practice in our area, you know, just a couple generations ago. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to explore in this book, like, you know, that, that for us these days, getting married at 15 or 16 is pretty, pretty unusual. You know, it's not something we would consider normal, but when I was thinking about it and thinking about like how that was, you know, pretty standard, you know, back in these not so distant times, I started to wonder what was different about these women or girls that they could handle that. And very quickly, I started thinking it might not have been that they were different. It might have been that they suffered through it or they dealt with it because that's what life was for them. But when you think about like brain development, you know, biologically, the prefrontal cortex isn't done developing until what, 23 or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, these women weren't fundamentally biologically different in their brains. And so there were developmental phases they hadn't finished going through before they were married and often having babies. And oh, yes. so I, I wanted to explore, like, what does that mean for them? What did that mean for their identities and who they could be, how they could think of their possibilities in life when they're being thrust into those very serious situations and often very difficult situations at such a young age. Yes, absolutely. I thought about it before, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, like I said, I had, you know, I obviously I knew because of my own grandparents and great grandparents that they got married at an early age, but, but I didn't realize that, you know, a lot of females were just told, Hey, you're marrying, you know, so-and-so here just in a few weeks and it's, it's going to happen. And that, that really kind of blew me away and made me really stop and think about how life was for the female, the females in my family, you know, my, my great grandma or my great aunts, or any, and I, I really have no idea what they went through uh, and how adulthood was basically just forced upon them before they were ready. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, we know things are passed down physically and genetically. And then of course, emotionally, mm -hmm. you know, so thinking about like, the good things and the traumatic things that they experienced, what did that mean for the mothers that they became mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the children that they went on to have? Yes. You know? And, and you know, your book is filled with several very strong female characters, uh, basically three generations of, like we said, the McKenzie women. Uh, and you were talking about things being passed down good and bad. One of the good things that's passed down between the generations of the McKenzie women in this book is natural remedies uh, and, you know, going out and picking certain mushrooms or herbs or flowers and making, you know, concoctions that can help uh, with your mental and physical well-being. Uh, 
what made you include that in this book? Is that something that your family has handed down that you do, or is this something you were interested in? Yeah, my family didn't really, you know, partake in that kind of thing. I grew up in an evangelical church, as you knew or know. So same here. We had uh yeah, we had the 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 laying on of hands and the anointing with oil as part of, you know, the the healing and the faith-based healing process. And uh, I've had a long interest in herbalism and, you know, natural remedies and that sort of thing myself. But um, I also knew that just historically, like that is an aspect of life that, you know, Appalachian women in particular uh, had a lot of like real wisdom and knowledge of and and there's some intertwining between the faith aspect of it and the you know the physical biochemical aspect of it that we now understand from a scientific perspective today but looking at like from today back to 100 years ago um what the medicine might have looked like you know there was a, a lot of intertwining between the faith aspect and the the chemicals being used the plants being used so there's a sense of of like some magical elements to it I think when we look back on it now like because there were songs and prayers and that sort of thing that accompanied all of the the physical healing aspects you know and they didn't differentiate between you know the plant or the the tonic that they made and then maybe the prayer that had to be said or the right song to sing while you're laying on a poultice or something like that. So there was a lot of that. And, you know, I, I just think it's really beautiful and um, important to recognize, you know, that not everything is, um, not everything can be explained or just fully based on science. And, you know, I, I have more of a, a love and appreciation for um, like the very human element of, of faith and the unseen, the love of the unseen. And I think that comes, that comes through when we look at, you know, traditional Appalachian healing, folk, folk healing in general, and those traditions that came from, you know, the countries that they brought those over with them from. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, I'm not a big uh, you know, per, uh, you know, taker of herbs. I do mm-hmm. have a recipe that involves elderberry and moonshine for a hot toddy, though, that, I, that I'm a strong believer in whenever you've got a head yeah. cold. <laughs> but there's no doubt that, you know, if you know what you're doing, there's definitely, definitely natural remedies here in the hills of eastern Kentucky. No doubt oh, about yeah. that. Absolutely. And, uh, yes, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I've noticed that a couple of, of, authors that I really enjoy have read this book and have put out, you know, early reviews of it. Silas House uh, read it and what and I'm I'm sure I've never asked you, but I'm sure you probably are a fan of Silas's work. What did it oh, mean wow. to you for A to him read that book, but, you know, give it such a great review that he did there a couple weeks ago? Well, it's, you know, just an incredible honor. Um, especially, you know, writers, getting praise from writers 
like that was that's always just really fulfilling and exciting because um you know other writers can can maybe see things in a, a manuscript that not all readers are going to catch or are going to be interested in so you know i know that a writer like silas house or robert guype is yes gonna, they're going to be looking at the story in a maybe a different way than a you know just someone who likes to read for fun or um who can just zip through a novel and i don't know i could be wrong i know there's a lot there's readers of all kinds but i feel like writers when they do the reading they're probably picking up on certain things so getting that positive feedback from from them is great and then um you know silas is probably i would say the the most or one of the most uh, celebrated Appalachian authors. So it's important for me to to have my work ring true for other Appalachians and also to to make positive contributions to the art that comes from the region. Absolutely. You know, so having my fellow Appalachians and fellow Appalachian writers say, yeah, you know, this hits the mark. This is ringing true for us. If that means a lot because it just affirms that, you know, I'm able to accomplish something that's, you know, it's I'm trying to do a lot with one book, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> getting a lot of different notes. So it was really amazing to get that. Yes. Let's talk just a little bit about, you mentioned that your, uh, did you say your grandpa and his father-in-law were bootleggers? Is that correct? Or was it your great-grandfather? Great grandpa. Yeah. My grandfather and his father in law bootlegged together for a while and what they called run and shine mm -hmm. uh, in Laurel County. So I and and there's a, there's two characters in this book that do that. And there's no doubt that you had to have based those characters on your great grandfather, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh it's funny that, you know, a lot of people that I speak to that's maybe never visited Kentucky, when we say, Hey, you know, because this book takes place during Prohibition, which alcohol was illegal nationwide. We have a lot of people, uh, county still in our state that does not sell alcohol. And a lot of my friends yeah. from out of state, they can't come in. They can't believe it. <laughs> they want to go. <laughs> uh, they, and, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even though Prohibition ended 100 years ago, it's never ended some, in some places in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. One of my editors along the way, um, she questioned something because she was like, well, this this would have been the case at this period in time, but not now. And, I, you know, I don't remember exactly why it came up, but I was like, oh, no. I mean, I think it was, I think it's, yeah, Bath County where the story set in, it's still dry. So, you know, I went and looked it up to make sure that I, I had that right. But I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they they've never allowed alcohol and that's the case today absolutely and before we move on uh i love a book that doesn't tie everything up neatly in a bowl that leaves yeah. a few threads hanging and you did leave a few threads hanging in this book uh was that intentional that maybe you know you you love these characters and this sitting so much that maybe you want to revisit them with a sequel down the road or was it just unintentional yeah, I actually do. I really want to write another two books in this 
with this family. Um, this started out, the goal was to have it span seven generations of the McKinsey women. Awesome. And, you know, it, it starts with who would be my great-great-grandmother. And then my great-grandmother is the main focus. Um, <laughs> well, by the time I got to about 100,000 words, the, the woman who uh, represents my great-grandmother, and she was like 23 years old. And so I was like, I am not going to be able to do all these other generations. You know, it's going to turn into... 700 page book and that might be all well and good for some readers but I, I didn't think we'd want to take that route with this so I tried to wrap up the story of Rosalie so that you can see um, you know certain certain life situations being resolved and being um, brought to a close but then also you know one of my main points in this story is like all of our stories are intertwined and when we're trying to figure out like who we are and what context we're living in we can go back and back and back and see how all these other events and our ancestors helped shape us or they made choices that impacted our choices today and I think that's really fascinating so I really do want to explore what comes next for Rosalie but then also her children and some of the other characters. I was hoping that was the case because I, I did fall in love with Rosalie. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I, I and I'm I'm glad that I've not heard the last from her. <laughs> and um we're we're getting ready to wrap up and people that are long listeners of the show know that when I do a guest episode and have someone on for an interview, we have to end with the concert game. I gave you a heads up this morning that we would do that. Uh first concert last next worst and best so and and i do know that you do love music because you had several chapters about music in your memoir and some oh, festivals yeah. that you had been to so what was the first concert you bought a ticket to well um the first concert i would have bought a ticket to would have been a fish concert that i went to when i was 15 awesome. it was in um Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. <laughs> my mom thought I was at my dad's house for a okay. week. So, um, I was en route to Maine. Or awesome. Rhode awesome. What, what was your last concert? Last concert. So this was a, a really small concert, but um, here in Berea at the Berea Arts Council, um, there was a, a showcase of some local musicians and one of my good friends, um, Ben Bautier, he was playing music and I went to see him play. I hadn't seen him in years and years and uh, I wanted to go reconnect and hear him play and I was blown away by his skill and his wife's skills too. She got up and sang with them. Awesome. Do you currently have a ticket for any upcoming concerts? I don't have a ticket. Um, I do. I have an event that I've, I've set up for September 17th, and I asked Ben to come and play. Yes, so that's, that's yeah. 
Let's talk about that because I was going. I was actually going to mention that at the end, but we'll go ahead now. It is a book signing and basically a release party for your book, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to figure out how to explain it to people. In a nutshell, anybody can come. It's free. It's at the Tailless Dog Bookseller at five p.m. So from five to six, we'll be at the bookstore, and then we're just going to wander over to the Boone Tavern Garden, which is hosting us. Um, they're going to have food and drinks for sale, mm-hmm. but I'm also, um, because I like to celebrate and didn't get to hang out with people when my memoir came out, I wanted to make this more feel like a party. So for people who at least pre-register, you know, you can pre-order a book or you can send me a message or the bookstore. Um, we're going to be serving the best biscuits with, uh, pimento cheese that you ever had. And we're going to be doing a tasting from um, the cocktail that I had designed for the to go with this book. Yeah, called you, the Rosalie. You you posted yeah. that on uh, on Instagram the other yeah. day, and we're asking people to guess the ingredients. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really good. And, they look good. Um, yeah, I'll be sharing more about it and like how the mixologist came up with it in the next few weeks, but. Cool. Um, so there'll be that and you know other food and drinks will be available from Boone's Tavern for sale outside and my good friend Ben is going to be playing music that goes along with the book so you know old folk ballads um older country songs some bluegrass just the best music to go with uh, that time period and some of the themes so it should be a lot of fun all right so quickly, what so is, yeah, what what was your worst concert? Unfortunately, I have to say the Almond Brothers when I was 20, I probably was 21, I think, or I might have just turned 22, but I was pregnant with my son at the time, and I discovered that, you know, dancing outside in the hot sun uh, for three or four hours while they were jamming just wasn't as fun in that state as as I had enjoyed other jam band experiences. And best concert? I've seen John Prine a few times, and uh, there's two times in Louisville that I saw him. One, I can't choose between them because one of them just felt like the most holy music experience I've ever had. It was incredible. And the other one, uh, he sang Sam Stone, and it just hit me so hard and I just sobbed <laughs> listening to him sing that song next to some stranger who probably didn't know what was going on with me but um yeah John Prine and I can't choose between either of those concerts though because they, they were both just life-changing fantastic once again thank you Bobby Khan for joining us on that one show and her new book out August 30th everywhere books are sold whether you want a digital copy or what i prefer an old-fashioned hardback or paperback please take my word for it it is fantastic you will not be disappointed go ahead and pre-order it i will be in the show notes posting a link to your website where folks can just hop on and go ahead and order that uh if, if anything we've said today has piqued their interest enough to go ahead and get it ordered and uh do you have anything that you want to say before we get out of here today? I think we're recording this by Zoom and we have like maybe one minute left. Just, I really appreciate it. And thank you to your listeners and you for 
for what you're doing. All right. Thank you. Have a great day, Bobby. You too. That One Show with Brian Combs is brought to you by Thatcher Barbecue Company and is written, produced, and recorded by me, Brian Combs. You can look me up on social media, on Twitter, at That One Show BC, on Instagram, at That One Show with Brian Combs, on Facebook, at That One Show Podcast, and on Patreon, at That One Show. So go follow us along on any of those sites, and please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, whichever you prefer. And finally, if you are enjoying this show, I ask from the bottom of my heart that you recommend it to at least one other person with whom you feel would enjoy it as well. Until next time, this has been That One Show with Brian Combs.